Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church podcast. We hope you're enjoying God's word proclaimed. We are a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. If you'd like to know more about Waterstone or to find out about our service times, please visit us at waterstonechurch.org. How amazing was that when the kids were walking through with the palm branches? I love the bounce between some of them who you can tell are just so excited and enthused to be here and they're like waving them like, yeah, this is awesome, versus the shy kids who are like, do I have to be here? <laughs> so great. Um, well, today is Palm Sunday, uh, but Larry has actually asked us today, instead of focusing on the story of Palm Sunday, to look ahead uh, towards the story of the cross. And so we're going to be spending our time today looking at the story of the cross from the Gospel of John. Have you noticed, though, before we get to it, how common and prevalent crosses are these days? I mean, whether it's on the top of a church steeple or around a necklace of a friend you know or on t-shirt of different brands of clothing, crosses are everywhere. What's interesting about the cross is that actually we don't see the cross become a religious symbol of Christianity until about 400 years after Jesus died on a cross. And most scholars believe that the reason that is, is is about 400 years after Jesus' death, 350, uh, Constantine, the emperor of Rome, becomes a Christian, and he outlaws the crucifixion as a form of capital punishment. And when he does that, scholars believe it took time for everyone who had witnessed a crucifixion to die off before it could ever be imagined as a form of art or a form of beauty. Because everyone who witnessed a cross, it was such a grotesque and brutal scene, everyone who witnessed a cross and a crucifixion would never imagine that it could be romanticized into the art forms we see today. They would have probably been horrified to see it as a necklace or as a painting because it was such a gruesome and brutal scene. I think it says something about us that that 2,000 years later, it's so common because I think in many ways we have come to take the cross for granted. In many ways, the cross and the power of that story has become nothing more than a piece of jewelry or a piece of art that we see in a museum. And the challenge for us today is to not let that story grow old because the challenge is, is that it's a story we are so familiar with, a story that we have heard over and over and over again that we think we can master it, that we think it has nothing more to reveal to us, that it has nothing more to tell us. But I believe the cross of Jesus Christ still wants to disrupt our lives today. It still has the power to bring transformation and new life, to change hearts, to change lives. And so the challenge for us today is to come to the story of the cross with new eyes, to allow it to speak to us in fresh ways, to not think that it's just something we've heard before so we don't have to hear again. The story of Christianity at its heart is a story of a cross. What's interesting is in the story of John, his passion narrative leading up to the cross, it's a very different story than we get in the other gospels. In fact, if Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all telling the same story, it's like a movie told by the same director from different camera angles. So you get little different details here or there, but for the most part, same story, same progression, same crucifixion. But if that's true, John's gospel is like a new director coming in and remaking the movie entirely in his own vision. He leaves out details that the other gospels include, and he includes details the other gospels leave out. 
And it's not that he's trying to contradict the other gospels. It's not that some gospels are true and, and John's gospel is not. It's not that his is true and the others are. He's trying to tell a different narrative to give us different insights into the story of what's happening on the cross. He's trying to give us a different picture of what Jesus is doing. Because John's story of the cross is rich theologically with symbolism and allusion to other parts of scripture. And it's this amazing story where John is not just telling us how Jesus died, but why Jesus died. So today, as we walk through the story and we try to look at the cross once again with fresh eyes through the lens of John, I would ask that you would, you would pay attention to some key details. Because I think at the heart of John's gospel, the crux of the whole story is this idea, the last words of Jesus, it is finished. John is trying to tell us the story of what Jesus finished on the cross. And I think there's two key things. I'm not gonna tell you what they are now. I'm gonna ask that as we walk through the story together, you look for them on your own and see if you can begin to pick up some of the pieces of what John is trying to tell us through this story. Don't miss the details that he has. Because when we come to the cross, we're coming to the center of our faith. And the only story that our entire faith is really built on. And so if you would, pray with me before we dive in. Heavenly Father, God, I come before you today. God, on Palm Sunday, where we celebrate the triumphal entry of a king. And as Justin just mentioned, that days later, the crucifixion. God, I pray that as we look at this story today, that we would make Jesus the center of our lives. That, that his story of the cross would speak to us in new and fresh ways. That it wouldn't be something we think we've mastered, but that we could come to the foot of the cross looking to be changed looking to be challenged, looking for our lives to be disrupted. And it's in the powerful and beautiful name of Jesus that we pray these things, amen. So in John's gospel, as we looked at last week, Jesus is praying, and when he's finished praying, he goes to a garden, and as he's at the garden, a group of soldiers led by Judas come to arrest Jesus. And do you remember what happens when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus? Does anybody remember the detail of the story that happens next when Judas comes to Jesus with the soldiers? If you remember it, shout it out. Kiss. A kiss, right? Kiss, exactly, except for John's gospel. In every other gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's very clear that Judas approaches with the, the, the soldiers to the disciples, kisses Jesus, and then the soldiers seize Jesus and arrest him. And they bind him and they take him to trial. John has a different way of explaining what happens. Listen to what he says. As the soldiers approach with Judas, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, knowing he's about to be arrested, knowing he's about to be put on trial, knowing he's about to be mocked and beaten and flogged and crucified, knowing everything that is about to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? What are you looking for? And John says that when he asks the soldiers what they're looking for, they respond, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus responds saying, I am he which those words send a shockwave through the army coming to arrest him. And it says that all of the people fall back and fall to the ground at Jesus' words. 
Because Jesus is not simply saying that I am Jesus of Nazareth. He is saying I am he. It's a calling back to Moses' encounter with God where he asks God what his name is. And God says, I am that I am. When the people come to arrest Jesus, his words are, I am. And they shudder and are fearful and fall back. And so he asks them again, who is it that you're looking for? What is it that you want? And it's interesting that John notes this question happens twice. Because I think if you look at John's gospel, the actual first words of Jesus in John's gospel are the same. What are you looking for? And then here at the Passion Narrative, he asks that question again twice. The question is bigger than the moment. The implications for this question are bigger than just a group of soldiers coming to arrest him. He is, it's as if John is saying, Jesus is asking you, who are you looking for? What are you looking for? It's an important question that we're going to come back to later in the story. So he asks this question twice, and again he says, I am he. And so then they arrest Jesus. And as they arrest him, Jesus says, let my people go. We've heard that phrase before. And he asks the people arresting him to let his disciples go and not be arrested with him. And in what has to be one of the most awkward moments, after they agree to not arrest the others, Peter draws a sword and starts attacking the soldiers. And you have to imagine that Jesus is like, what are you doing? We just let them go and now you're attacking them? This is not what's going on. And he commands Peter to stop fighting and to put away his sword. And they arrest him and they take him to trial with the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day. And what's interesting, and again, in every other gospel, we get a pretty clear story about what happens at the trial with the Sanhedrin. John, for the most part, leaves that out. That's not the core thing that he wants to talk about. In fact, he just gives one note about Caiaphas, the high priest, where in the other gospels, Caiaphas, the high priest, has a a, a dialogue and a discourse with Jesus. This is the only thing that John has to say about Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for many. It's the only note that we have about Caiaphas in the story. And then Jesus is taken to trial in John's gospel with Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And while Jesus is on trial before the religious leaders, we get a short discourse there, but John is showing that there's two trials going on. In the temple, there's a trial with the religious leaders, and then outside of it, there's the trial of Peter. And Peter began to ask, or people begin to ask Peter, do you know Jesus? And he denies it. And they say, wait, weren't you the one who attacked the soldiers? He said, I don't know what you're talking about. That wasn't me. And while Peter's denying having ever known Jesus, Jesus is before the religious leaders saying, I have never done anything in secret. Why do you question me at night? Why are you putting me on trial? My ministry has been open. You can ask any of my disciples who I am and what I've taught, and they will tell you. As his closest disciple is denying having known him. And then it says that the religious leaders, they take Jesus and they send him to Pilate, the governor of Judea, the Roman prefect. And what's interesting in John's gospel is is Pilate actually takes the center place of the trial. There's the most detail given about his story. And in fact, there's a whole dialogue with Pilate and Jesus, and then Jesus is flogged, mocked, and crowned as king, and then Jesus talks with Pilate again. And in each of these dialogues, the structure of the story is set up so that in the first dialogue with Pilate, there's two key questions asked of Jesus that Pilate asks for him. 
two key questions that he wants to get to the heart of what's going on in this situation. And so the people, they bring Jesus before Pilate and he says, what, what has this man done? Why are you bringing him before me? And they say, well, listen, if he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't bring him before you. Translation, let's not worry about the details of why we're bringing him before you. Just trust us. This is a man you want dead. And so Pilate calls Jesus into his palace and this is what it says their dialogue is. Pilate then went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You see, Pilate is trying to understand what Jesus has done to be brought before him. And the thing that makes the most sense is that if he is a king, if he is gonna cause an uprising against Rome, then he needs to be executed and put to death. So he's trying to get to the heart of the matter. Is Jesus a king? It's the first key question Pilate asks. And Jesus, he has kind of a snarky response, which I love. He says, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? He's basically saying, did you come up with that yourself? Or are you just listening to the gossip that's been going on in Jerusalem this last week? And Pilate, you can see him getting a little bit frustrated. He says, am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? What is your crime? What are they accusing you of? And listen to Jesus's words. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. See, sometimes people come to this dialogue with Jesus and they hear him say that my kingdom is not of this world and they think his kingdom is not for the world. Of course, he's a heavenly king. He's a king in heaven, but his kingdom has nothing to do with earth. It's from another place for another place. Jesus is, is trying to bring us to that kingdom, but that's not what Jesus says. He says that his kingdom is not of this world. It's of a different substance than what you're used to, Pilate. My kingdom doesn't come through the fighting of my servants. Remember when Peter tries to fight, he stops him. Every kingdom that we know that's ever come on the face of this earth has come through violence, has come through the oppression of others. I mean, Alexander the Great, Rome, America, it's come through war. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And what's so interesting is when he says that, Pilate says, wait, so you do think you're a king then? And Jesus says, I've come to testify to the truth. You say that I'm a king, but I've come to testify to the truth. And Pilate asks the second important question, what is truth? It's as if Pilate is saying, are you truly a king? And Jesus' answer is, I am a king, but my, king is, my kingdom and my kingship is nothing you have ever seen before. You don't even have the paradigms for it, Pilate. You have no comprehension of the kingdom that I'm bringing. And Pilate then wants to free Jesus because he thinks he's no threat to his kingdom, to Rome. How could a king that doesn't fight, that doesn't have servants that fight for him be any sort of threat to Rome? Should be let go. And so he takes Jesus outside and he says, let me free this man. And the people respond and they say, no, we want Barabbas. And John gives us an interesting note about Barabbas that none of the other gospels do. He says that Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. He was a Jewish man of violence. And John's trying to tell us that the people have traded Jesus for a man that they think better resembles the kind of way that they think their kingdom is gonna come through violence. If Jesus won't fight 
and Barabbas will, then he's our better shot. Let's take him and you can have Jesus and crucify him. And I think we have to pause here in the story and actually take a look at Palm Sunday because it casts a whole shadow over this entire story of the cross. Because at the heart of the story from Palm Sunday to Good Friday is a story of disappointment. This week I was reading an article in New York Magazine about disappointment. And the article starts with, I kid you not, one of the most like, okay, right, statements that I think an article has ever started with. It says, the feeling of being let down and disappointed is actually one of life's toughest emotional experiences. We know this, (laughs) of course. Being disappointed is terrible. If your spouse forgets an anniversary, it hurts. If someone forgets your birthday, it hurts. If someone who you had had once given you butterflies betrays you and breaks up with you, it hurts. Being disappointed, no matter how big or how small, it hurts. What the article did say that I found really fascinating is that the level of our anticipation or expectation about an event increases the level of disappointment if it doesn't happen. Basically, the article said that our brains work like this. As we begin to anticipate and get excited about something happening in our lives, as we have hope that an event is going to occur, our brain begins to release dopamine to try to tell us this is a good thing that we want and we're hopeful for. And as our brain releases dopamine, when that event happens, it releases a double shot of dopamine so we get twice as excited and feel twice the pleasure and excitement. What's interesting about that, you you just think about a a sports team, right? That as you're watching the game and and the game is building and building and building and it looks like they're going to win and they finally pull the victory out. You're excited the whole way through. It's a rush getting to the end of the game. Then they win and you're ecstatic. That person, that team won the game. And so you're excited and you get a double shot of dopamine. Sounds pretty dope, right? (laughs) About to be a dad. I got to practice my dad jokes. How'd I do, students? No? All right, cool. All right, I'll keep working on it. So it sounds amazing. But the, the thing that's interesting is our level of anticipation or excitement for event, if it doesn't come to pass, because shockingly, life does not turn out the way we expect always, right? Sometimes the team we root for, rather than like grasping victory, clutches defeat from the jaws of victory. Some of us Rocky fans are very familiar with this feeling, right? <laughs> so the level of anticipation or excitement we have When it doesn't come to pass, scientists call that a reward prediction error. A reward prediction error. Basically, as you are thinking this event is gonna happen, it doesn't come to pass, not only are you more disappointed, but it says that your dopamines plummet after that event doesn't come to pass that you had been hoping for. The story of Palm Sunday and Good Friday is a story of an entire community faced with a reward prediction error. Jesus comes to town as king, and the city is about to burst at the seams with this anticipation and excitement of this king who's gonna come. And and scholars actually think that as Jesus is riding into town on a donkey, from another side of the city, the extra Roman legions who are there for the Passover weekend for this celebration are coming into town as well because they're coming to reinforce to make sure nothing gets out of hand this weekend of celebration. And it's almost as if Jesus is coming to town to clash with these Roman soldiers. And you feel the people building in anticipation and excitement as they shout Hosanna. They are ready for an uprising. They are ready for a fight. And Jesus does nothing. He doesn't fight. 
He doesn't lead a rebellion. He doesn't charge into Rome and kick them out of Jerusalem. Instead, he does nothing. And all of their hope and anticipation and excitement plummets to disappointment. And I've been in church long enough to know that we share the similar experience with the Jews in Jerusalem on Holy Week. I've been in church long enough to see us place our expectations and our hopes on God's, only to have him show up in a way we didn't expect with a different plan that we didn't want. And when he does, our worlds shatter and we're filled with disappointment. How can this God be a God that I want to worship if he works in the world this way? When my dreams and my realities and the things that I hope for and expect don't come to pass, the first place I go is to question God, how dare you not do and be who you think I think you should be? That's the story of Palm Sunday and of the Jews on Good Friday when they trade the life of Jesus for Barabbas. Because they look at Barabbas and they think he is the man who can bring the things that they hope for. That he has a better shot of fulfilling those hopes and those expectations. Jesus has disappointed him, so take him away and crucify him. How many times in our life have we traded Jesus for Barabbas? How many times in our life have we said, I prefer my own way to God's because I don't like the plan that he has doesn't meet my expectations and my hopes and my dreams. That's the story of disappointment when the people say they would take Barabbas over Jesus. And so when Pilate hears this, it says that he then took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Jesus is crowned, and then after he's crowned and beaten and declared King of the Jews in a mocking way, Pilate brings him back before the people. And he says, where before there were two key questions Pilate asks, at the, this part of the story, there are two key proclamations Pilate makes about Jesus. And the first one is he brings Jesus before the people and he's crowned with a crown of thorns. He's got a purple robe of royalty and he's been beaten and flogged and mocked. And he brings them before the people and he says, behold the man. Thinking that the state of Jesus and, and how he's been treated will maybe get some sort of empathy from the crowd. And when they see him, they shout, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate, he's feeling flustered because he doesn't know what to do at this point. Nothing he has done has changed the tone. So he brings Jesus back inside and he says, Jesus, I, I want to set you free, but, but how do I do that? And Jesus says, you have been given no power in this situation. There is nothing you can do to save my life. The only power you have been given is by God. And what is about to happen has already been written. And so Pilate, after hearing this, he brings Jesus back in front of the people again a second time. And he has a second proclamation that he gives. And he says that he took Jesus to the seat at the place known as the stone pavement, the judge's seat, the place where Pilate would have proclaimed his judgment on the people that he tried. And this is what he proclaims. Here 
is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. Two proclamations, the man and the king. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate asked, shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. The Jews have come to the place where they're so disappointed in Jesus that they would rather submit to Caesar in bondage than live under the rule and reign of God in Jesus. And so they trade the true king for Caesar. And so Pilate hands him over to be crucified. And what's interesting is all the other gospels leave that whole portion of the story out. When Jesus is flocked and mocked and, mocked and, and, and crowned, it takes him straight from there to the crucifixion. But John gives us this whole second dialogue with these two proclamations that Jesus is the man and the king and then hands him over to be crucified. And so he hands him over to be crucified and it says that when they crucify him, they nail him to a cross, but they nail a sign above his head that says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And they write it in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, the three languages in the entire world that were most common in that region and in the Roman Empire. It's as if they're proclaiming he is king of the world without even knowing it. And then John gives us these details of the final moments of Jesus' life, where he says, later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so scripture would be fulfilled, it's actually the same word, finished and fulfilled, same word there. Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus says, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Three times in the final moments of Jesus' life, John wants us to know that Jesus sees something is finished. Knowing that he had finished all things, and in order that scripture might be finished, he asks for a drink and then gives up his spirit saying, it is finished. What is finished? What does Jesus think he has accomplished? What is John trying to tell us that Jesus has done in the cross and in the story? I think there's two key elements, as I mentioned before, and the first is this. I think John is trying very clearly to tell us that in this narrative, Jesus, through the cross, is becoming king of the world. There are several different details that I think are actually really important that, that help lay this out. In the Gospel of John, 15 times, do we have that slide? 15 times king or kingdom is mentioned in these two chapters alone. Before these two chapters of the Passion Narrative, do you know how many times Jesus mentions king or kingdom throughout the entire Gospel? Once. And he's asking throughout the whole gospel, who do people think I am? And it comes to the crucifixion and suddenly he is a king of a kingdom, not of this world. And not only is he a king and, and of a kingdom that's not of this world, it also, the proclamations that, that Pilate makes. So Jesus is proclaimed as king continuously throughout the story, unwittingly by most of the people, but still proclaimed. The soldiers mock and beat him as king of the Jews. The proclamation that Pilate makes is that here is your king, the sign above Jesus. 
king of the Jews. And beyond that, beyond those three things, I think it also tells us that the whole structure of this narrative, the whole structure of this story, the central point of the story in John's gospel is Jesus' coronation as king. Let me show you what I mean. The way John has laid out the gospel and this story of the passion narrative, you have Jesus' arrest, and then you have his trial before the religious leaders. You have his dialogue with Pilate. He is crowned king with a crown of thorns and a royal robe. He talks to Pilate again. There's a sign placed over his head where the Jewish leaders say, don't put that sign there. And then he dies and is buried in a garden, the same place that he was arrested. The center point of John's whole story, the thing that he is trying to call our attention to, is Jesus' royal coronation at the cross. John wants us to see that where we see death and devastation and destruction, John sees the coronation of the king of the world, that Jesus is king. And it's no wonder that Pilate can't see what's going on, that the Jewish leaders can't see what's happening, that that John has to show us the other lens work to let us see what's really going on behind the scenes. Because what kingdom has ever come through a crucifixion, through death? Every kingdom that we have ever known has come through violence. And Jesus makes a point and a point and a point again and again and again that his kingdom does not come through violence, but through sacrificial love through not power, but vulnerability. And I was thinking about this this week and I remembered a a series of of paintings and artwork called the Vulnerability Series by a, a Syrian artist. And the paintings, they look like this. This is Obama as an immigrant waiting in line. There's also a painting of Vladimir Putin as a homeless person needing help. There's a picture of Donald Trump as a refugee fleeing his home. Can you ever imagine one of those world leaders, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, ever trading places with one of the people they're depicted as? Can you imagine Donald Trump saying to a, to a refugee, I will give you all of my wealth, all of my power, all of my towers, and I'll take your place and you can have mine? It would never happen. Can you imagine Vladimir Putin trading places with a homeless man who spit in his face? Can you imagine President Barack Obama trading places with an immigrant who tried to kill him? See, the paradigm of the cross is so countercultural to anything we have ever seen in this world. The paradigm of the cross is that a ruler greater than any of these the ruler who is the only reason any of them ever had power in the first place chose vulnerability and to take the place of those who rebelled against him, those who slapped him in the face, those who mocked him, to die in their place. And that is the means through which John says he becomes king. 
And we have to go back to that first, first question now because it's the, it's the important question that, that highlights this whole story. What are you looking for? What are you looking for in this life that you think will satisfy you, that you think will bring you happiness and joy, that you think will fulfill you? Because in this life, the things that we look for to satisfy us often end up ruling us. And the things in this life that we let rule over us often end up crushing us. The Jews in Jerusalem in that day, when they traded Caesar for Jesus, they were looking for someone who could bring them security and keep things status quo just a little while longer. Jesus wasn't gonna give them what they looked for, and so they bent the knee to Caesar and allowed him to rule over them in a way they had not before. 70 years after that day, Caesar rolls into town, destroys the temple, wipes out all of the Jews, and scatters them across the face of the earth. The things that we submit to in this life crush us. The things that we allow ourselves to be ruled by crush us. We see it in our own lives. We saw it just this past month with these parents who were so consumed, so looking for the satisfaction of having their kids succeed that they were willing to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to get their kids into Ivy League schools. They were so consumed with thinking that my kid's success or my reputation Getting this, this, them into the school is worth everything. I will sacrifice all my values, all my morals to get ahead. And it crushed them. What are the Caesars that we have bent to, that we have said we are looking to fulfill our lives that will give us what we are looking for? We all submit to something. And the things in this life that we submit to and allow to rule over us, the things that we are looking for often end up crushing us. But in Jesus we have the only one who has ever ruled that was willing to be crushed for us and is therefore the only one who is worthy to say, we have no other king but Jesus. And how many times do we refuse that and say, we have no other king but our kids. We have no other king but money. We have no other king but the weekend that we're living for. Only in Jesus do we have a ruler who does not crush us, but is crushed for us. And so I think in the cross, John is trying to show us that it is the means by which Jesus becomes king over the entire world. And he's the only king worth bowing down to. The reason he's the only king worth bowing down to is because he is the only king who's willing to die to rescue the world. That's the second thing I think John is trying to show in this story is that Jesus is the king who dies to rescue the rebels, the people who have risen up against him. And there's a, many different details in the story that I think point us to that. The first is that just like king and kingdom is mentioned 15 times in these two chapters, cross and crucifixion, John is calling special attention to the fact that Jesus is sacrificing himself on the cross. We have that line from Caiaphas that it is good that one should die for many. And beyond that, in the Gospel of John, the first thing that is said about Jesus from another person is, behold the lamb who has come to take away the sin of the world, to rescue the world. And beyond that, we have this allusion to the hyssop plant. The hyssop plant was the, the, the plant that was used in the Passover. When Israel killed the lambs and smeared the blood over the doors to free them from bondage to Egypt. They used a hyssop plant. John is saying that through the blood of Christ, another hyssop has been used. A cleansing has taken place. A freedom and a deliverance is taking place for the whole world. 
And we also have the proclamation that here is the man. There are three proclamations made about Jesus in this story. Behold the king, behold the man, and Jesus calls himself, I am. God become man who took on flesh to save and rescue the world. When John is telling us the story of the gospel and and telling us the story of the crucifixion, he is calling special attention to the fact that Jesus died in order to save and rescue us. And as I was thinking about that this week, it's kind of weird. I, I, did anyone see the, the picture this, this week of the black hole? It's like this great scientific feat that, that happened that, that people were actually able to capture a black hole, which is supposedly no light can ever escape from, and, and they figured out a way to, to take a picture of it. Kind of went on this deep dive of, of research on, in a, into astronomy and all this stuff that I have no idea what I was reading. But when I was doing that, I came across another picture that some of you are probably familiar with. And it's a picture called the pale blue dot. Because in 1990, as Voyager 1, the space probe, was about to leave our solar system, Carl Sagan, an astronomer, asked NASA, he requested that they command Voyager 1 to turn around and take a picture of Earth from 3.7 billion miles away. And this is that picture. This is the Earth. This pale blue dot. It's barely a pixel in the picture. 3.7 billion miles away, the pale blue dot. This is what Carl Sagan had to say of this picture in a moment of reflection. He said, the earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and in triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think again of the rulers and their violence. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of the dot on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner of the dot. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance and the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale Light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there's no hint, there's no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. It is up to us. It's easy sometimes when we look at the world, isn't it? It's hard to disagree with Carl Sagan. The violence, the destruction, the emptiness, the brevity of life. It can be hard at times when we're confronted with mortality and sin and death, not to go to a place where we think we have no hope and there's no one coming to save. And yet the story of the gospel, the story that John tells, is the story that God so loved the pale blue dot that he was willing to send his son to sacrifice so that we would not perish under all the violence and devastation and destruction of this world, but that we could have eternal life in him. It was for love that the king chose to sacrifice, for the rebels who spit in his face, who mocked him, who betrayed him, who tore him down. It was for love that he chose vulnerability 
for the love of the world, the pale blue dot, for the love of you and for the love of me. We are not on our own. The centrality of the story of Christianity is that God is not some far distant, far removed entity that doesn't care about our plight and our suffering. It is a God who stepped into our plight and our suffering for us so that we might be rescued and saved. That is the truth that John is trying to tell us in this passion narrative, the story of the crucifixion and the cross. You know, it's interesting, those words, it is finished. When we think of them, we can see now, looking back 2,000 years later, we can walk through the text and we can see, oh man, wow, Jesus, he says it's finished and he, he became king and he rescued the world. But I, but I was struck this week by, by the fact that as Jesus is dying on the cross, there are four women who followed him there and John, the beloved disciple. And as Jesus is dying on the cross and he shouts out these words, it is finished, it could not have sounded like the triumph of a king being crowned. It could not have sounded like a man rescuing the world. It could only sound like one thing, a man dying. But I think it reveals something deeply true about our God. That in the moments in life, when it looks like everything is falling apart, when it looks like death has won, when it looks like we have nothing to cling to and everything is coming undone, when it looks like we have no hope and no one coming to save, that is the moment when in the silence we are desperate to hear God say anything at all. We can cling to the cross and hear him say, it is finished. And that is our hope. And that is the truth of the gospel and the truth of the cross. May be powerful in your life and transform and bring new life to you. The king who died in your place through the sacrificial love of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, we, we can do nothing but lift you up. The king who is made low on our behalf. The king who entered into vulnerability. Who entered into death. Because of your great love for us. So Father, I pray that the truth, the good news of that story would change and transform our lives. That it would be the energy that we give ourselves to, that we would say we have no other king but Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, 